We should have done like some sort of like cool like uh, Return of the Jedi like entrance or something. I thought about that as it was counting down. So <laughs> it would have been really cool to like have that like a like a little script. But it's too late. That's okay. It's too late. It's the over. fanfare was nice. The fan dun da da da. Cause we're back from out of space. Do, 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 do. I forget the rest of the song. So um, <laughs> I, I actually really didn't forget the rest of the song. I had a great idea that it just crashed. It does half of a line of the whole song. I do. From out of space. That's what I remember. And now it's it's gone. It's gone. And now I got to. You only know off. that because that was featured in one of the Men in Black trailers. Yes, probably. Yes, that is probably true. And I did love Men in Black. Um, I actually got my interest in, in uh, space from Men in Black instead of like Star Trek or Star Wars, like a proper geek. <laughs> so um, I, those came later. Those came later as I was like introduced to nerd culture. So. Dr. Not. <laughs> what are we learning about? <laughs> what are we learning about today? So, uh, this may not be the most fascinating uh, topic, but Katie's idea was that since I've spent, you know, six years slash the last several months, dang girl, look at those guns. Um, oh, I was trying to give you a cheers pose, but yes, also. Muscles. Very impressive. Keep going. Um, <laughs> uh, is we're going to talk about what my dissertation project was, and I will try to make it the non-boring version as much as I can. Because that's where we've been for the past month. Our fearless leader has been becoming a doctor-level scientist. Because after all, my name is Katie, and I'm not a scientist. Yes, and my name is Erica, and I am apparently, officially, even more of a scientist. <laughs> a doctor scientist! And this is... Southern, Southern Science. Science. Nice. So yeah, Erica's going to talk to us today about what made her a doctor scientist. She's not just a regular scientist, she's a doctor scientist. She's Dr. Not. Yes. Ha ha, Dr. K. <laughs> Dr. K. Dr. Not. <laughs> I'm actually really here for it. I'm, actually, I'm, I'm super excited for you. And I have to say, I'm so proud. I think it's so cool what you did. And there's nothing in my life I have ever been more sure of than I don't want a doctorate <laughs> watching what you had to do. But into it. I have never been more sure of, I mean, like never more sure. I wasn't more sure of my marriage, of adopting dogs. I've never been more sure of anything in my life than I do not want a PhD. <laughs> like, I'm just like, no, there's mm -mm. Nope. Well, uh, your field would be very different. And uh, I mean, you just took like big, hard qualifying tests and everything. So it's not like uh, you're giving me a very skeptical look. I know you were worried about your test. I took a qualifying test, a singular qualifying. Yes, I was worried about it. I haven't taken an exam since undergrad. Wow. Since the GRE. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is my first standardized test in like 10 years. See, I was worried about it, but it was fine. I'm a social sciences major, so my PhD would not be to the same level of your PhD, <laughs> but I don't even want to do a fraction of your PhD. It looked terrible. Like, just from the outside looking in, I was like, oh my God. And you can pay it either, which is baffling to me. Apologies to our listeners for being gone for what is probably two months because I became a hermit and was like 24-7 writing my dissertation and then... Right, and then I had to make my defense presentation because if anyone doesn't know how the PhD process goes at my school, no one knows. Well, I mean, it's different no in different no departments. So what I have to do is I have to write my dissertation that describes all of the things I've learned over the course of my PhD, um, which for me was six years, and I ended up with a about two hundred page dissertation. 
so I did that and I had to write it in less than a month because that's when I was like given permission to start writing on it. So that's why I had to stop the podcast and be a hermit. And then once I was done with that, I just had to make a presentation to present that information to my department and then have a bunch of backup information for a private meeting with my committee, my advisory committee, where they they review my dissertation and ask me extra questions and tell me stuff that they think I should add to my dissertation and stuff like that. And then a few heaps of paperwork later, I'm cleared for graduation. I'll be graduating in two weeks, but I am. Hey, I'll be there. <laughs> I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a poster. Yay. I'm going to be, I'm going to be that friend that everybody's like, who invited her? You can bring a cowbell. Why is she here? I'm, oh my God, I'm going to bring a cowbell. I'm going to wear like bright pink and uh, my hair is already blue. And then I don't know, I'll probably wear like yellow gold shoes and I'm going to have a poster that goes, yes, Dr. Nod. <laughs> yes, Dr. Nod, here for it. Yay. You can do the science. Yes. It's like, yeah, like I feel like our podcast is a little more legit now. We're like, Erica, not PhD. Yes. Yes. This was the only reason that I went through all of this was to make the podcast more legit with an actual PhD on board. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, okay, we need to get shirts. We definitely need to get our shirts, like, you know, that say scientist, not a scientist, and hey, you should have a PhD on it. And mine can have like an MEB or something. Don't spoil your birthday present. <laughs> <gasps> Am I getting a shirt? Yes. Yes! We can have matching shirts, so we have to wear them everywhere so people know who we are. Southern science. Yes. <laughs> Scientists and not a scientist. But yes, I've ordered that I'm so here for as your birthday it. present. Hopefully it will be in by the time you're here for graduation. Yes! Oh, I'm so excited. That'll be so amazing. <laughs> Best birthday present ever. We'll take a picture and put it online so everybody can see it. Oh, yeah. Because I'm going to be really excited about it. Definitely. <laughs> All right. So here's my question. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand, like, you know, like for all of our listeners, I know Eric and I have talked about this before. We've been friends for a very long time, like seventh, eighth grade, you know, uh, middle school. Like we got to be really good friends, like ninth grade. And like, so I have been present for a lot of her sciencing, right? And like, we've <laughs> talked about typically when I would go to her lab, she would sit me on a rolly chair like I was too and be like, touch nothing. And I would do my best to not touch anything while she like messed with cells and played with cancer. Um, which sounds weird to say out loud, but I know that's what she was doing, like growing cancer cells and all of this stuff. But I, I honestly don't, I could not, I know you're doing something with proteins. I know it had something to do with cancer cells. I could not tell you what your dissertation actually was. So that's why I wanted to ask you about this today, because this is basically five years of work for you. Yes. And I can, and like when people ask me, I'm like, I know she does something with cancer and proteins <laughs> and she can make them glow in the dark. Cause that's the part that you did once and stuck out to me that I thought was really cool. <laughs> I was like, great. Now we have radioactive cancer cells. That's just everything we need in life. So yeah, so I wanted to get an idea. I was going to say, you remember from our luminescence and fluorescence episode that not all things that glow are radioactive. This is true, but it's more dramatic when I say they're radioactive. It gets people's <laughs> attention. They're like, oh, I'm like, I know, right? She's made, it's this is like basically the start of Resident Evil. <laughs> so yeah, so I would like to know officially what you're doing, what you've been doing. What has five years of research led to? <laughs> okay, yeah. So that's going to be our topic for today is the hopefully short and sweet version of Erica's dissertation project. Hey, I'm here for it. And it doesn't have to be short and sweet. Well, it, it does. Cause otherwise people will stop listening. <laughs> 
That's true. We have to keep it to around an hour. This is true. Even like my defense presentation to my department was only an hour. And then after that, you know, it's hard to get the committee even to listen much past that. So they don't want to listen for like more than an hour. Anyway, who can blame them? I mean, it's probably because they have so much to do. Yeah. Yes and no. (laughs) Unfortunately, what A lot of what I'll be covering was stuff that I actually did in the last year of my dissertation. I had some problems that were happening basically in the year before quarantine hit, where I wasn't getting a lot of significant results with all of my prostate cancer studies. And so luckily, to my benefit, shortly before the quarantine happened, my boss and I had decided to write this like really comprehensive review manuscript and start to incorporate a lot of bioinformatics data which is just analyzing publicly available patient data, which when you analyze that, you can find out a lot of really interesting correlations between say gene expression and survival or other different clinical attributes. And that can tell you a lot, but it always has the caveat of it's not experimental data. It's not something causative that you can prove. So looking at bioinformatics data has its ups and downs. Okay. But luckily, I'd started that right before quarantine hit. And so I was able to keep doing that through the work from home period because I wasn't able to do anything with my cells. And then Uh as a basis of how that was going, you know, and which cancers were looking like our system of interest were particularly influential. From that, we were able to kind of switch gears whenever I came back from the quarantine. I started working with a completely different cancer type and was able to get some fairly interesting data that we'll talk about kind of at the end of this presentation. Okay. So let's try to try to work into this from the ground up. And I know Katie's heard some of this before, but probably forgot most of it. And that's totally okay. Katie can always use a refresher. I can throw back some information you gave me if you drew me with anytime you draw me pictures Mm -hmm. or you like make me walk through it with you. But like understanding how it slots into your big picture stuff is more difficult. Like I understand the basics of what you were trying to do in a vacuum. <laughs> that's okay. I can give you like bits and pieces. That, that's completely good. <laughs> it's a start. Continue. <laughs> so what the title of my dissertation actually was, was bioinformatics and functional data implicate the GABA system in cancer progression. So kind of the overall function of my dissertation is to describe this biological system that we're calling the GABA system and how it correlates to survival in patients with many different cancer types. So ostensibly all cancer types, we're looking at 32 different cancers and how maybe the activation of this system may influence cancer progression and then doing some experiments in actual cancer model and trying to dig a little deeper into how mechanistically that's actually having an effect. So that's kind of what I was doing. Because the good thing about this system, as we'll talk about in a second, is there's already a lot of drugs that exist and are clinically available to target this system. So if it is important, then it would be good, you know, for repurposing those drugs for uh, cancer treatment purposes. That's something that would be really helpful. Yes. I mean, it sounds helpful. So I'll start out by giving kind of an introduction of what the gamma system is. And then we'll get into what the actual different genes that I'm looking at, what their role is in the GABA system and why that is impactful. And then what that has to do with cancer progression. And feel free to stop and ask questions at any time. Oh, don't worry. You know, I will. (laughs) So the way I started my actual defense was um, cancer is bad. Cancer is bad. I can agree. No one likes cancer. Unfortunately, even though no one likes cancer, a third of Americans will actually develop cancer at some point in their lifetime which is a pretty big 
number of people. And actually, a fifth of Americans will die from cancer. I didn't need to know all that. Cancer is the second most common cause of death in the United States. I think the first most common is our own hearts turning against us. Yeah, I mean, that's so, going long term. Like heart disease has been like in the number one spot for a while. It's like the OG. Yeah. But as people live longer, you live long enough for your cells to kind of go awry and start growing crazy. And eventually, if they metastasize, that's usually what kills you. So a lot of times, to cancerous tumors that stay in one spot usually aren't the problem. Those can either be removed or stay there because they are not causing too bad of problems, but cancer metastasis is usually what gets you. So despite you know the vast number of tissues in your body that can become cancerous, that can go haywire, and they all the cancers have inherent differences because of the tissues that they come from, cancer is more of a programming error than it is a single biological thing. So cancers share common phenotypes or characteristics that mean they grow really fast. They don't stop growing when they touch other cells. The way they get their energy is often modified to where they try to crank out a lot of energy in a more inefficient fashion. And we'll just ramp up eating sugar and they'll like generate a very specific waste product that makes their environment really acidic. You know, there's these really common characteristics of cancer that despite what tissue they come from, they're all behaving the same way. So because of that, there is an increasing focus in the scientific community for identifying what they call pan-cancer biomarkers. So it's something that doesn't just identify if we think you have breast cancer, we think you have lung cancer. It's something that says, if this is present, it means you have cancer, then we'll start to be more specific down the line. So if you have a pan-cancer biomarker, you could screen a what kind for of cancer? pan-cancer, meaning a cross-cancer. Ooh, okay. Cross-cancers. Yes. So that's the goal. And that's actually what I'm looking at is can my lab's system of interest be a pan-cancer biomarker that not only tells you if cancer is present, but something prognostic. So like no matter what cancer you have, if it has high levels of this transcript, it's good for you. Or if you have low levels, it's bad for you. And we should probably start treatment really soon. Something like that. So if you can have a limited number of biomarkers, that will tell you that. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I have a question. This might be a really dumb question, mm -hmm. but I'm going to ask it anyway. So I heard you say with the pan, like like you're looking at pan cancer. So basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to categorize cancer, right? Like not only is your lab trying to like be like, you have cancer. They're like this, you're trying to figure out this is the really bad kind. Like I'm going to pancreatic cancer, which is like, it's not looking good. Mm -hmm. You like, I mean, okay, maybe not good cancer, but the cancer where it's like, I mean, if you have a trip scheduled to the Bahamas, you can go to that. And I'm thinking like cervical mm -hmm. cancer, prostate cancer. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Like you can figure out if, okay, this needs like, you need surgery treatment right now versus, okay, we can, we can t watch it, watch and see for a little bit. So kind of like, like how you just said, the different types of cancer already have to an extent, that known level of stratification yes. of like pancreatic cancer, start treatment now, prostate cancer, you probably go watch it for a while and see what happens. Yeah. So we don't really need that. What we were looking for is something that's like you have cancer, no matter what type of cancer you have, if you have high levels of this gene, you're probably fine. If you have low levels of this gene, then it's bad for you because like some prostate cancer is good. Some prostate cancer is bad. So think of, think of, um, breast cancer, you know, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. 
not usually that bad, not only because it's treatable, but because it metastasizes less and tends to grow slower. Yep. If you have triple negative, then it's going to grow really fast, has a lot higher likelihood to metastasize. And in addition to that, it's hard to treat because the innate, you know, estrogen receptor targeting drugs aren't going to work. But if we can find something like that for other cancer types, like, you know, within pancreatic cancer, you know, some pancreatic cancer doesn't kill you as fast. Some, a lot of it does kill you as fast, but, you know, within each cancer type, is there a marker that could say what the prognosis is across cancer? So you didn't have to have a specific marker for every cancer type. You could just say, you know, for all these cancers, this is part of our panel of checking how severe it is. Okay. How dangerous is it? Right. Okay. Yeah. And then if you can look at that, then you can hopefully start looking at ways to prevent getting it. Like I know with breast cancer, like things looking for like the BRCA gene, mm-hmm. you got that. Yeah. Like, nope, you're gone. Like I have like two or three friends who like BRCA gene, yeah. immediate double mastectomy and, you know, go from there. Yeah. So, so that's yeah. a real, that mutations in that gene are really high risk factor for developing breast cancer. Um, but that doesn't help you when it comes to other cancers. Yes. You know, there are some markers that are like proliferation markers that say like, okay, if this gets mutated, then your cells just don't know how to stop dividing and growing. But the problem with using that as a target is, is all of your cells use that as its guide to divide and grow, which is why broad spectrum things like chemotherapy that just attack any cell that happens to be dividing at this time, while it will proportionally hit more cancer cells than normal cells, it will also hit other fast dividing cells like your hair and the intestinal lining and stuff like that. So not targeting at all is also bad. (laughs) That's why you lose your hair. Mm -hmm. I did not realize that. Okay. Okay. So you're looking at seeing if you can find like universal genes between cancers that let you know this is going to be a really bad version of this cancer versus you got you got a little luckier this is not the worst version of this cancer exactly okay cool i'm following okay i got you we're looking at the different levels of cancer across cancers yes okay different levels of these genes that indicates cancer severity across cancers okay yes and it would be baller if those could also be a therapeutic target you know, if you find out something that say like, you know, this gene being expressed at high levels is bad for you. Is this something that's treatable? You know? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That'd be cool. Catch it early. Right. And then it would be, that would apply to multiple cancers. Which would be awesome. Yeah. That'd be really cool. So that would be the goal. Stop cancer before it happens. That's always the goal. We like that goal. <laughs> Prevention is better than treatment. Yes. So the biological system that my boss my, I guess now former boss has worked on for a couple decades has been called the GABA system. And GABA is an amino acid, but it's not the exact type of amino acids that makes up your proteins just because it's kind of not shaped exactly right. But it is a very small molecule. It's only like four carbons long. It's most well known for being the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in your central nervous system. So generally when GABA binds to your neurons, it binds to two different types of receptors. Some of them are basically little holes that when the GABA binds, they open up and they let chloride ions through. And chloride is negatively charged, so it makes it harder for your neurons to fire. I thought chlorine was poisonous. Well, not chlorine gas, but chloride the ion. It's like half of salt, you know, sodium chloride. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Haha. Following along. Continue. So yes, you have lots of chloride ions. And like I said, because they're negatively charged, they change the membrane potential of your neurons. And basically, so 
when your neurons fire, the process of your neurons being able to send a signal from one to the other, it's an electrical signal and it's becoming positively charged briefly. That charge travels along your neurons. And then when it gets to the end, it releases little chemicals that will travel across a gap in your brain to another neuron. And then that will have an electrical signal. So the way your brain working is a combination of electrical signals and chemical signals. And the GABA is an inhibitory chemical signal because when it binds, it lets those negatively charged ions into the neuron and makes it harder for that signal to happen. So it's almost like a, um, I'm trying to like figure out a way to put this. So you, your GABA is almost like a, uh, like a toll booth. Like it decides what gets to come in and what gets, what has to stay out. Yeah. So it's like a toll booth. It's like, you shall not pass. It's Gandalf. <laughs> yes. So like, Or you can pass. It depends. If you're cool, you can pass. Otherwise, nope. So it's like your neurons have that, have that, like that gate, that toll booth, like you were saying, and putting in positively charged ions is like putting in your coins and being able like, okay, the more, the more positive ions we have, the more we're going to lift this up. But the GABA is like, taking the coins out of the bank saying, no, we were not going to have the money to lift this gate. We're not going to start the action potential. GABA's the tax collector. GABA's the IRS. <laughs> yes. Like, it's just taking away your signal. Yes. <laughs> nothing. I got it. GABA's the IRS. You know, your neurons are like trying to let people in with the positive and they're like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> Pay tax. Yep. Just taking away all of the signal that you need in order to be able to lift that gate. Absolutely. Okay, so Gabba really is Gandalf. He's like, you shall not pass. Okay, we're keeping this business closed. We don't want anything open. Okay. Exactly. Yes. And so that is what Gabba is most well known for, is serving that role in the central nervous system. And that's why some people, as I was mentioning uh, before we started recording, that's why some people take Gabba as a health supplement because it's thought to promote sleep and uh, relief of anxiety because they're saying, well, you know, if you just need your neurons to fire less because you're anxious and your brain's firing all over the place, then just take the Gabba and it'll quiet your brain down. As I mentioned before, that would work great if GABA was able to cross the blood-brain barrier, which there's debate about whether that's actually even possible. So if it's not, then that uh, doesn't help you at all. Stop giving supplements your money, guys, for GABA. Yeah. It just sits in your system and does nothing. It doesn't know how to cross the, the gate. Well, it isn't able to get to your brain, but as we talk about in a minute, it may be able to act on the rest of your body. Oh, okay. But also, like, the so... There are a lot of drugs that exist to be able to target GABA receptors, uh, GABA transporters. They're involved in taking the GABA up to your presynaptic neurons so you can recycle it. Even something I use a lot in my experiments is inhibitors for the enzyme that breaks GABA down. And the reason that all of those exist is because of research into epilepsy. So epilepsy is a erroneous synchronous firing of your neurons, where your neurons are legitimately firing too much together with each other and not necessarily causing seizures, sometimes cause grimal seizures with the like actual physical seizing, but can also cause like absence seizures and lots of different things. Um, but it's your neurons firing when they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. So you don't just give someone GABA for those conditions. What you do is kind of like with um, antidepressants that are, that are SSRIs that are inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin. You, get, you give them a medicine that will stop the transport of GABA back up into the neurons. You'll stop the reuptake of GABA. You'll stop the breakdown of GABA, or you can um, give 
drugs that will sensitize the receptors to the GABA. So you'll put in a drug that will also bind to those little chloride channels and make it where once the GABA binds, it'll bind longer and have a stronger effect. So that way you're still responding to your body's natural level of GABA, but it just has a stronger effect whenever you do. And so that will help prevent the seizures. So that's the reason that there's a lot of drugs that exist to target this system. Which makes sense. Yeah. And it makes you chill out, right? Like that's the thing. Like GABA's whole thing is like making neurons relax. Yes. Making the neurons relax, not necessarily your physical body relax because of, you know, you just took straight GABA. That's yeah. But it makes your neurons relax with like, you know, epilepsy and stuff like that. They stop firing all at once. Right. And it stops a seizure. Yes. And it can have a sedative effect because of that. It does kind of taking those anti-seizure drugs can make you like sleeping and stuff. Okay. I'm going to Google anti-seizure drugs. Keep going. So GABA is pretty well known in that field, in that context. But the weird thing is, is that the GABA system actually exists in almost every tissue in your body. And that's not been well studied at all. So pretty much the only other places that GABA has been studied in your body is that it plays a role in your pancreas. Strangely, no one knows why, but type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease where your immune system attacks and kills your pancreas beta cells. Okay. What your T cells are recognizing to attack your pancreas cells is actually the protein that makes the GABA. No one knows why your proteins, your pancreas is even making the GABA. It's co-released alongside insulin. It, it enhances insulin release and, and blocks um, some other release. But apparently that, that's enough of a big deal that if you target that enzyme with your, you know, your own T-cells, you get type 1 diabetes and it kills your cells. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> GAB is also being investigated as a, a treatment for asthma and COPD because it has something to do with uh, mucus production in your lungs. Again. That's been very little studied. There's also been studies that have found GABA throughout all your other tissues, like through liver, your adrenal glands, your kidneys, your GI tract, female reproductive systems like uh, uterus and placenta, mammary tissue. So it's, it's all over the place, but no one really knows what it's doing. So we only focus on it when it has to do with the brain so far. Yes. That's what the research is. Okay. That's where all, almost all of the scientific investigation into the role of GABA in mammals has been. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that GABA is also really well studied in plants. And in plants, it plays a completely different role. It, com- it is a stress response system. And that's what we're interested in and in seeing if it is actually, if that function is evolutionarily conserved. Because in plants and bacteria and yeast, all, throughout all the lower kingdoms of life, the GABA system uh, is activated to protect against all kinds of stressors, against heat, against acid stress, against reactive oxygen species, which is like what you need antioxidants for, against starvation, where you don't have carbon or nitrogen sources. So the GABA system is activated to protect against all of those. And so that was the main impetus for our project was is this an evolutionarily conserved system that the brain has just hijacked for some tangentially related purpose? But if all of your tissues have this uh, this compound and this system for making and degrading GABA, what is it actually doing? And so we wanted to see if cancer cells were using the GABA system for this same purpose, because cancer 
the nature of having a tumor means you don't get nutrients. You have a high acid stress. You don't, you have high reactive oxygen species. So all of these things that the GABA system is known to protect against in lower life forms, maybe that could be playing the same role in cancer. So that's what we wanted to investigate. Okay. So what you were looking at was, and you said if the cancer hijacks, so basically it's, it's, was the idea that if GABA in our cells started performing the same function as GABA in plant cells, then it could fight the cancer? Well, our first thought was that cancer was using it, that it would be bad for us because the cancer would say, hey, I can turn on this GABA system. And if it's running, then I don't have to worry about the acid stress of being in an acidic tumor microenvironment. And that would let the cancer progress and be bad for the oh, patient. Oh, like the cancer's attached to the GABA. And it's GABA, G-A-B-A? Yes. Okay. So you're thinking the cancer is like hijacking GABA and like taking it over and being like, do all these things for me, protect me, be my thing. Yes. Using this system for protection. Yes. Like straight up hijacking. Yeah. What did, okay. So that's actually really interesting. I had no idea you were doing that. I knew you were looking at GABA and like protein yeah. receptors and things like that, but okay. So that's interesting. So the idea that like cancer cells find this system that's like, like, you know, dust it off. We have, we don't use it anymore. The brain only uses it. And they're like, I mean, if nobody else is going to use it, we can use it. Yes. That's Finders basically keepers. was our thinking. Yeah. Cancer is screaming squatters rights. This is my system. Yeah. Now. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Was that true? So strangely enough, we did not find evidence of it acting in this metabolic capacity that we thought it might be. Okay. So that's good news, right? That's good news. <laughs> well, it would have been pretty convenient if it had been acting in that capacity because then you could just treat people with a, you know, an ABAT blocker um, by Gabatrin. You would prevent, if you could prevent the degradation of GABA, then you could prevent it being used as a metabolic substrate and be like, well, then this cancer that can't grow anymore. And unfortunately, gotcha. that didn't work out. Okay, gotcha. Which is kind of why, why all my prostate cancer uh, data was kind of bust because I was really looking for a metabolic effect. You know, if you treat with either GABA or block the metabolism of GABA, like surely this will affect its ability to take up sugar or produce lactate or its ability to make energy, things like that. Yeah. I got nothing. I got like really slight effects, but nothing that my boss really believed in. So we moved on. We, we, it, we decided to approach the problem from a different angle. Is the okay. politically correct way to say that. <laughs> there we go. We decided this was bogus and moved on to something yep. else. Yep. <laughs> All right. We're going to look at it a different way. Okay. So we started by trying to kind of get a big picture, you know, because GABA isn't just like the molecule by itself, it can do a lot of things. So, like I said, GABA has in the nervous system, GABA binds to the receptors and affects, you know, how your neurons fire. There's two different types of receptors. One is the one that I mentioned before that's basically just a hole that chloride ions can go through. Yep. And the, that when, yeah, the gate. The gate. The you shall not pass gate. You shall not pass gate. The, the other, tax, tax collector GABA. Tax collector GABA. Nobody <laughs> likes IRS GABA. Okay. <laughs> the other option is uh, slightly more complicated. It's, it's not like a hole that, that like ions pass through. It's like, there's a, a, a protein that goes across the membrane of the cell. And so GABA binds on the outside. And then on the inside, 
that causes a change in the shape of the protein and it let it lets go of some of the other proteins that's bound and those go off and cause other changes in the cell they can either open other ion channels or they can you know affect the production of other like little molecules inside the cell so that's just it doesn't the GABA doesn't actually let anything go through it's not a direct hyperpolarization anymore it like it pushes a button on the outside of the cell and causes the release of some proteins on the inside of the cell and causes another change that way gotcha okay so we've got button pusher GABA and we have mm -hmm. IRS GABA we have gatekeeper GABA yeah right so we have gatekeeper GABA yes. and we have button pusher GABA and they seem to do completely yes. opposite things one of them stops stuff one of them's like do things well, but the do, the things that it does down the line are also inhibitory. So it, it either prevents GABA from being taken up into the cell or it, it also affects calcium being able to come into the cell, things like that. So it's also inhibitory. It's just a different mechanism. It's like it's like there's there's GABA at the other end of the toll booth pushing a button that like locks the toll gate down or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like it's just, super exclusionary. It like doesn't want it's, friends. It says don't come through and it's just trying another method. It's not just taking the coins out of the toll booth. It's like down the line pushing another button that says no. It's so. like super sophisticated toll booth GABA. It's like I yes. push a button and stop a lot of things. You yes. know? Okay, so this is more this is more efficient GABA. Gotcha. Yes. And then, so that's like two parts of what the GABA system is. And then there's the transporters that can transport GABA in and out of the cell. Uh, some of which are, you know, just for taking up GABA from the microenvironment. And then some of the transporters actually package the GABA into these little balloons that are inside your cell for whenever you want to like release in a group. It's just like basically a big water balloon full of GABA that you can just throw all the GABA in one clump instead of just diffusing and throwing little bits at a time. Oh, wow. And then the other set of transcripts that we're looking at is the enzymes that make and break down GABA. And so those are the ones that I was really interested in, making and breaking it down. So those four groups of proteins are what makes up the GABA system. The enzymes that make and break down GABA, the chloride hole type of receptor, the button pushing type of receptor, and the transporters. So those are like four categories of things we need to look at. Okay. And we're most interested in the enzymes that make and break down GABA because you need to have GABA present in order for it to be having any effects via the receptor systems. So looking upstream of the process, what's controlling the GABA levels and therefore controlling receptor activation. Yeah. So we're going to look at the enzymes that make GABA and the enzymes that break down GABA. The ones that break down GABA we decided to look at first because those are already druggable. They're druggable. You can already yes. mess with those. Yes. So the name of that enzyme is called ABAT. A-B-A-T. That's the most, oh, I, I love that. ABAT. ABAT is yeah. how you break down GABA. Oh, I, I love a good pun situation. Yes. I'm here for it. We just smash it. It just breaks it apart. That's what I would be. If I was in the body, that would be the enzyme I would be. I would be a bat. <laughs> you would be a bat. Just, and just break just things. a hammer. Just to smash stuff. Like my dog's <laughs> kill GABA. Just die, GABA, die. Okay, so we got a bat flying around. So basically what it does is it, it, it takes a nitrogen atom off. It, it clonks a nitrogen atom off of the GABA. That's what it does. Yep. And then the, the, the reason that I was looking at like GABA as a metabolic substrate is because if you break it down one step past that, it turns into succinate and succinate is a substrate that your mitochondria uses for fuel. 
So it's like, if you can take this GABA, you can get it, you can make it yourself, you can get it from other cells, you can get it from the bloodstream, wherever. But if you break it down, it can feed into your TCA cycle and be used for energy. So what's an efficient little protein? Oh, yeah. It can do a lot of things. Okay. It's mainly exclusionary, but if you start beating it with a bat... It yes. I mean, in the, in the nervous system, it's kind of a, you know, we're here to tell your neurons not to fire kind of thing. But there is some evidence that you, not your neurons, but the other cells in your brain that aren't neurons. And I know that's a new concept, but yeah. those cells may use the GABA for energy. Okay. But my question was if cancer cells were using it for energy because cancer cells obviously need a lot of energy in order to be able to divide and grow and do things that they shouldn't necessarily be doing. Yeah. Um, in order to misbehave, so, cancer cells need energy. Yes. So these are the kind of things that I wanted to investigate. And like I said, we're trying to find something that applies across cancer. And so the first thing that we wanted to look at in all of the different cancers that there have been studies on. And to be fair, when I say that, I mean the 32 cancer types that the Cancer Genome Atlas, which is a group of people who had this huge project on characterizing all of the different cancers there are. So they had what they called the Pan-Cancer Initiative, and it was to can characterize all these cancers. And so that Pan-Cancer Initiative covered 32 different cancer types. And so I looked at the data that they collected from all of those different cancer types. And that includes, you know, well over a thousand patients of breast cancer, but other cancer types maybe have less, like you get a glioma and it's probably like 30 people or something. So what's a glioma? Brain cancer. Oh, bad. Cancer. It's when, so your glial cells are the ones in your brain that aren't your neurons. I've heard of those. When those go wrong, you get a glioma. A gliomer, which is a fun word. Probably not a fun cancer. No, probably not. That one doesn't need to metastasize to kill you. It's already in your brain. Yeah. Oh. So there has been a little tiny bit of evidence into this so far, not to poop on anyone who's researched this so far, but there's not like a well-known scientific consensus on like, you know, ABAT's good for you in these different cancers. So there are four different cancers that I could find previous research that said having high ABAT is actually good for you or bad for you. They all said having high ABAT levels is good for you. And by levels, I mean the transcript. So when you have your DNA, your DNA is the whole instruction manual for making every protein you could possibly want to make. It's your blueprint. Well, not necessarily. It's like your instruction manual. Like Oh, it's got words. It's a okay. hardcover version. It's got all gotcha. the information you could possibly need. All of it. Now, got if, it. Okay. if you're going to, if you want to build something in particular for that cell, that's when you just need the blueprint of what is relevant for that cell. Okay. That's the RNA. RNA is the blueprint. DNA is like, here's your instructor's kit. Yes, exactly. Read this. Yeah, it is all the information, but you don't need every protein for every cell. You just need the ones that are important for that cell type and what it's doing at that time. Okay. So you have the, the RNA is, or what I will call transcripts, because it's just you transcribed what was in the instruction manual and you made a blueprint out of it. The level of that is going to be proportional usually to the amount of protein that you get, because you take that blueprint to, you know, your ribosomes, which are your little construction proteins, and you say, make this for me. And it makes that. Do this thing. Yeah. The more copies of that blueprint that you make, that you can take to the ribosome, usually represents the more protein you have. Okay. 
it's it's a lot easier to measure the transcripts than it is the protein. So you're kind of hoping that those correlate. But if I'm measuring the amount of transcripts, it's measuring the amount of blueprints that are there and saying like, okay, this means that there's probably high levels of protein as well. Yeah, if I made 42 blueprints, I'm assuming there's probably 42 proteins. That's the hope. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. usually yeah. the case. There could be some other regulatory steps, like half of the protein says, half of the blueprints say like, don't make more of this, like stop. But <laughs> that's another issue. At some point the ribosome goes, I've seen, I've made too many of these today. You no, to we're stop. done. I'm done. Lunch break, over. <laughs> I'm going home. Yes. Getting my lunch pail and leaving. So looking at the transcript data, luckily there's a lot of places online where this transcript data has already been deposited, not only from the, the Pan Cancer Initiative, like I said, it was a very helpful group of people who tried to characterize these transcript levels in all of the different cancer types, but there are individual groups who like, they'll do a study looking at transcript levels just in their population of like 50 people, but then they'll upload it to the internet and say like, well, we were only interested in these transcripts, but we characterized all of them because that was the easiest thing to do. Here's the information in case anyone else wants to use it. Oh, that's helpful. Yes. And I was able to find that information for, you know, for AVAT, um, for a lot of different cancers and kind of incorporate that into my information. So we're looking at AVAT and the sum up of my like bioinformatics delving has been a few points. One, AVAT is highly present in every cancerous tumor, every tumor, like literally. Okay. So like the stuff that breaks up the GABA, like to buddy up with cancer. Everyone's got it. Yes. Every, oh. every tumor's got it. Sounds like every tumor's got high levels. Okay. That's what we're wondering. Like the weird thing is though, also all the cancers have really high levels of it. I mean, there's a variability, you know, but all of them have it. So some of them have really high ABAT. Some of them have maybe less high ABAT, but it's all, it's, it's ubiquitous. I'll say that. The thing is, is that actually the cancer has less of it usually than the normal tissues. So although ABAT hasn't been widely studied in normal tissues, turns out that normal tissues has even more. So this is something that cancer is actually trying to turn off. Okay. So cancer doesn't want GABA broken down? Maybe. Woo! It's a mystery. Look at me. I'm catching on. I should be a scientist. Yes. <laughs> so at, th at this point, all we're seeing, we're, we're, I haven't said it yet, but the pattern that's going to emerge is that high ABAT is good for the patient, which means that cancer is wanting to turn the ABAT off. Like more severe cancers have less ABAT transcripts. And so this is, this correlates with several indicators of patient survival. We'll look at overall survival time. So in 11 different cancers, cancer types, having high ABAT transcripts is a marker of having significantly better survival times. This is the same when you look at cancer subtypes, like so the types of cancer like ER positive versus ER negative, you know, something like that. If you look at subtypes that have of cancers that have known prognostic differences, the one that has a better outcome for the patient is the one that has higher ABAT. Similarly with tumor stage. So lower tumor stages have high ABAT, but then as the cancer progresses to a higher stage, it gets, I don't know if I said that right. It has no, no, no. Yeah, you're right. as the cancer gets stronger, the ABAT gets lower. Yes. 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 <laughs> I was making sure I so, hadn't confused myself. So ABAT is a good guy. Go ABAT. So wait, so that means they don't want the GABA to be destroyed? They want to keep GABA? 
That's what it's looking like. Yes, they want to okay. keep their GABA around. And you know, GABA can be doing other things. The, the GABA can be activating receptors. So I was thinking that they would want to break down the GABA and use it for energy purposes. But maybe it's more important that it starts activating the GABA receptors, either on the cancer cells or on other tumors, other cell types in the tumor. Like as a transport? We'll see. So okay. the receptors are to, you know, they let chloride ions go through or they cause other like intracellular changes depending on the cell type, the receptor type. So we'll talk. Well, I'll get to that. That's where some of my experimental data comes in. Thinking brain is on. I am intrigued. <laughs> Continue. What I feel like is even more interesting because, like I said before, usually if you have cancer, what kills you is the metastasis. Like cancer that sits in one spot usually isn't that bad. But when it starts to travel to your brain or your lungs or something, that's usually when it gets you. So ABAT is more highly expressed in the primary tumors of patients who don't get metastases rather than the primary tumors of patients who do get metastases. So the primary tumors that are going to lead to metastases that are going to like start to like their cells are going to start to turn loose and go travel to other places. Those are the ones that don't have very much ABAT. If you have a lot of ABAT, you're going to stay put in that primary tumor and not lead to metastases. Now, an interesting thing is that once those cells get to the secondary site and they form a metastasis, then they start to turn on their ABAT again. And that's a separate issue that I don't think I'll go into in today's podcast because it will take a lot of time and it'd be confusing without being able to show pictures. Okay. Yeah. I'm actually Googling what GABA and stuff looks like right now. So continue. I'm good. GABA itself is a little bitty tiny molecule. It's only got four carbons and one nitrogen and it's, it's little bitty. Okay. Yeah. All right, continue. And so as, as you might expect, ABAT expression is correlated with a bunch of cell cycle progression genes. So if you have low ABAT, you have higher levels of these stereotypical tumor markers that say like the cell needs to divide and replicate its DNA and progress through the cell cycle. So when you have low ABAT, all of these like stereotypical cancer processes are being upregulated. So you're like, oh, that's really interesting. Kind of says that ABAT might even be considered a tumor suppressor because like if you have high ABAT, obviously these cancerous processes aren't, as, aren't happening. They're not progressing as much as, you know, they are otherwise are without the ABAT. So the question is, why is ABAT being tumor suppressor? That's so weird. Yeah. It's opposite of what we were expecting. Right. Okay. And just to throw it out there, I did kind of can, I did also look at the limited amount of protein data and show that these, there's less protein data out there, but they are significant in the same direction as the transcript data is. So uh, you just kind of have to say that, you know, the transcript doesn't necessarily mean protein data or, and then doesn't mean like active protein, but we did the best we could to kind of correlate those. So that's all good. I will skip over the next part of my paper which was basically, it was looking at the enzyme that produces GABA called GAD for glutamate decarboxylase. We've talked about GAD before. Yes, because when I was doing the prostate cancer, GAD, I was focusing more on the GAD, the GABA yeah. production rather than the GABA breakdown. But it's not, it's not uniformly correlated with any cancer progression. Like it's, you know, favorable in some case cancers, it's unfavorable in other cancers. It's not like ABAT where like, no matter what cancer you have, high ABAT's good for you. So I looked at that. It didn't turn out to be super interesting. So we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> Wasn't helpful at all. 
good to know that's that's not it. If if GABA levels are what's important, it's being controlled more through the breakdown of GABA rather than the production of GABA because you can actually get the GABA from different sources. And what matters is whether or not you're breaking it down faster than it can be used to activate other things. A bat. If it, you know, pharmacologically, when people like when doctors want to control the level of GABA in your brain, they don't control the level of synthesis. They control the level of breakdown. That's the yeah. easiest way to be affecting this. So. Sure. Yeah. It's easier to destroy things than to stop them from happening. That seems reactive rather than proactive, but it's e- easiest. Yes. <laughs> I said easiest. I didn't say best. I said easiest. It's always easier to destroy things in massive quantities than to try to like figure out how to not fix make your more. problem ahead of time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think that's a very American way to approach things. Yeah. We I was going to say mistake. we can easily get political. <laughs> we have made a mistake. Let's destroy <laughs> everything. Yep. All right. So we're, so we're trying to figure out, okay, so that's what we're looking at. All right. Keep going. Okay. So that's so interesting. So this is something, this, this ABAT thing, this is a pattern that's appearing across lots of different cancers. About half, over half of all of the cancer types that are in the pan cancer initiative, like the TCGA pan cancer study, over half of them are, have this ABAT correlation with a survival phenotype or a cancer progression phenotype. They don't like ABAT. Yeah. For some reason, the ABAT's like good protective for the patient. What's up with that? So I needed to do some experiments and try to start poking around. So I picked a, yeah. <laughs> He's poking. That's very scientific. I don't know why this is happening. Let's start breaking stuff and see what happens. Let's do it. Yeah. Just start poking at things. It'll be fine. You know, that's there's only two steps to science. Step one, f- around. Step two, find out. You oh, know? <laughs> I like it. I'm here for it. Yes. All right. I'll have to bleep myself. But yeah. Nope, I like it. <laughs> All right, you go. Yep. Now Eric is throwing yep. her microphone. Y'all missed that. She's just like she's full <laughs> science mode right now. Y'all, it's kind of propped up. About to um, find out. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to I had to pick a cancer to start poking around with, and one of the cancers that where ABAT was the most prognostic, like where. Like in in patient samples, there was this really distinct dichotomy of basically half the patients had a lot higher ABAT than the other half. So there was very like this two distinct groups and there was very big effects between those two groups just split solely on ABAT level was adrenal cancer, specifically adrenocortical carcinoma. I'm going to call it ACC, but it's cancer of your adrenal cortex, which is the outside of your adrenal glands. And that's the part of your body that makes um, stress hormones, cortisol but also can make other steroid hormones like androgens and estrogens and uh, aldosterone. Not a good so, place to get cancer. Yeah, usually things where you're you're busy making hormones that affect the rest of your body is like maybe not a great place to get cancer. No, it seems like cancer has like a subway station to like every other part of your body from there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it, it can be a problem because depending on what cell type gets you know, is cancerous and starts overgrowing, then you can have too much cortisol and like, congratulations, now you have cancer and Cushing's disease. Or if you get um, too much, if you have overgrowth of one of the cells that was making androgens, you know, this could be a female patient who suddenly has male powder and baldness and other symptoms of like, like male, maleization symptoms. And like um, guys that get the, you know, 
too much uh, an overgrowth of the cell type that uh, produces estrogens can start to like grow breasts and have like what they, you know. Congratulations. Uh, you have cancer. Also, you have all these other horrible things happening to you. Right. Thanks. Right. Cancer. It's like cancer's not bad enough. Enjoy your uh, hyper stress syndrome, you know. Thanks, no cancer. Thanks. Yeah. We're going to throw some A bad at you. <laughs> so we were looking at ACC. And in, di in diving deeply into the ACC, we found, you know, high ABAT is correlated with higher overall survival, lower incidence of having new tumors after you start therapy, having those, you know, not having those excessive hormone levels. The, the ones with the high ABAT are the ones that don't get that excessive steroid level and have a lower incidence of developing metastasis. Always great. Because again, like many other cancers, the metastasis is what's the most deadly in adrenal cancer. Of course, because we're doing the the deep dive here. Uh, use, we're using a, adrenal cancer as like this model of okay. So we found out that ABAT's important, but we don't know why. Yeah. So we need to look. You know, at, if high ABAT is good for you, and it means that you don't have as much GABA present, what is that doing to the things the GABA would normally be affecting? So we looked at like trans um, transporter levels and receptor levels. So we looked at all the transcripts for like GABA A receptors. And tried to find out what receptor, what combination of GABA A receptor subunits the these cells probably express, um, and we found out that they could definitely be expressing um, high affinity receptors. So it means that if GABA is present, it's probably binding to something and causing an effect in these tumors. So we just had to make sure that the receptors are present. Okay, and when you say binding to something in this tumor, are you saying like it's making the tumor stronger when GABA is present? No, it's just that the like the GABA molecule is going to bind to the receptor and then the receptor, say, opens up its chloride channel and causes a, a change inside those cells. It's basically GABA pushing the button to open the chloride channel or to cause you know changes inside the cell. So it's just whether or not GABA is present is one thing and then whether or not the receptor is present is another. So the GABA-A receptors, that chloride channel, it's made up of lots of different pieces, and you just have to know which of those pieces are present in order to be able, can it make a full functional channel? And so that's all we're looking at. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is different subunits, so the, the little different pieces that make up that channel, some of them are correlated with good survival, and some of them are correlated with bad survival, like longer, longer survival versus shorter survival. It's like, well, why would that be? So we started thinking, Okay, so here, one of the concepts that not a lot of people think about is that the tumors that are in your body, less than half of that tumor is actually made up of cancerous cells. A lot of the other cells that are in that tumor are immune system cells like T cells that tried to respond to the emergency that oh. is tumor to cancer and got stuck there or blood vessel cells or structural. Yes, they're captive. They're captive cells. They, and when we yes. chemo them, we just we're, we're like, we don't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> yeah. Like the whole thing gets irradiated. Like if, oh, you, no. if you do surgery, the whole thing gets taken. Out. That's really but, cool. So one of, the, one of the things we're really interested in is the fact that a lot of the, what they call host cells, which are like your body's normal cells that haven't gone haywire, that are hanging out in the tumor, like they don't want to be there. They were there to kill the cancer. And then something, the cancer, a lot of times the cancer is secreting something that deactivates those cells. And that's why, yes, and it just, they get absorbed and then they just sit there not being active. 
That's actually really sad now that I'm thinking about this. It's like all these cells come to our defense and then it's like we take them prisoner and our way of reacting to that is murder the whole thing. And the T cells are like, we yeah. are just helping. <laughs> that's really sad. Exactly. I no, that's like I mean that. that's right. I don't well, like that at all. Then then you'll you'll appreciate the concept of like immunotherapy. So one of the biggest hot new buzzwords in cancer therapy has been immunotherapy, which has basically been jazzing up your own immune system to make it stronger so it can fight the cancer on your behalf. It's teaching your your T cells how to recognize the cancer cells and fight them better. And, and that really the, the prevalence of immunotherapy really emphasizes how important your immune system is to fighting cancer. So one of the things that was interesting is that we noticed that so some some of the GABA A receptor subunits are good for you are are correlated with longer survival. Some are correlated with less survival. The one that's correlated with less survival has previously been uh, considered a pan cancer marker because it's highly expressed in a lot of different cancers. So our thought is maybe it's expressed on the immune cell component. It's some it's part of the cells like the T cells that gets sucked in and trapped into the tumor, no matter what kind of tumor it is. It's just some things, the T cells that were otherwise in your body and they get sucked in when they try to try to respond to the cancer, then they get stuck there. So that'll, I may not make a lot of sense right now, but it'll get, it makes sense in a second. No, no, it does. Like, you know, like the thing that can make cancer worse, like it, your body's not doing it on purpose, but it's, it's attached to your white blood cell. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Like I've I've seen the I've seen sci-fi movies where it's like you're making it worse. <laughs> you're making yes. it worse. Stop it. Yes. Okay. So we started doing experiments with adrenal cancer cells that I grow in an incubator in my lab, which is what Katie was talking about. Um, I grow the cancer cells in a dish. I dump drugs on them and see what happens. And um, some of my favorite experiments are the experiments that I did the most often in the last year where basically I would treat them with the drug and I would put them under a microscope that was in an incubator that a camera attached so that it would take pictures of the cells every few hours as they grow. And sometimes I would just, you know, watch them grow. And then sometimes I would like let them grow till they were a solid layer and then scrape out a clean patch in the middle and then watch how they fill in that space because that's, that's an indicator of how well the cells can migrate because that's like how, how motile are they? Yeah. And then sometimes I scrape out that empty place and then fill it with a gel that mimics the extracellular matrix, like all the proteins that kind of support your cells outside of them. And so the cells not only have to migrate, but they have to be able to degrade that matrix in order to be able to kind of push through it. And that's, that's measure cell invasion. So measuring those things. So I did those all different kinds of experiments and found that surprisingly, none of the drugs I was using affected proliferation alone. So how fast the cells divided. So that's fine. And the drugs that I was using was one that inhibited ABAT, stopped GABA breakdown, one that activated GABA-A receptors, so the chloride channel, one that inhibited the GABA-A receptors, the chloride channel, one that activated the GABA-B receptors, which is like the button pushing one that causes other change, but doesn't, you know, the button pushing one. And then one that inhibits that kind of cancer. So I'm trying to hit all my bases of like, if GABA is having an effect, downstream effect, what is that effect? So nothing on proliferation. But migration, GABA and GABA-A receptor agonists caused a decrease in migration 
and also a decrease in invasion. So it's like GABA A receptor activation. So letting chloride ions into the cancer cells was causing less migration, less invasion. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense because less invasion and migration would be good for the patient because that means your cancer isn't spreading as much. But if you, if that's something that happens when GABA is activating these receptors, you don't need as much ABAT. Right. Why would high ABAT, which is breaking down the GABA, be good for you? That was going to be my I don't understand. Okay. Right. That that was our big question. That doesn't make any sense. And this is where you think about there's more than just cancer cells in the tumor because it's actually already known that GABA-A receptor activation in T cells inhibits them, stops them from proliferating, stops them from activating to be able to identify target cells, and basically makes it where they can't move or do anything at all. So having high GABA levels inhibits the immune response, shuts all the T cells down, lets the T cells come in and say, hey, we're here to fight the cancer, and then boom, they power down. They go to sleep. They can't divide. They can't do anything. So the high ABAT makes it where that deactivation of the T cells doesn't happen. The T cells are free to fight the cancer where high ABAT is. And if the if the cancer cells have low ABAT, then there's a lot of GABA present and the GABA shuts down the immune response. And that's... That is so interesting. Okay, so the cancer cells don't want the ABAT because basically what's happening is if there's not enough ABAT, the GABA is turning off our first line of defense. Yes. So GABA is shutting down our immune system. Yes, it's inhibiting the the immune system in the cells. Right, because the cancer cells, other cells in the tumor can make GABA. But if if there's not enough ABAT to break it down, it will inhibit the T cells. Because I'm like, it's not about the cancer cells. Because I'm testing the cancer cells and saying the high GABA is inhibiting their growth. It's not about the cancer cells. The thing is, proliferation is not affected. So with the high GABA, even if their migration or their invasion is less, they're still free to proliferate as much as they right, want because GABA is not affecting cancer. that. But the T cells can't do their response anymore. You don't have the immune system fighting on your behalf. So if we can shut down GABA production, then T cells are allowed to fight, which I mean, and that makes sense. That's why you have better long-term effects because our immune system's working with the other drugs that we're taking to try to kill this crap. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Are you the first person to figure this out? I don't. I mean, other people have found that like T cells in a dish are are inhibited by GABA, but no one's ever, to my knowledge, no one's ever considered that in the context of the T cell, the T cells that are in your tumor microenvironment. How does the degradation of GABA in the tumor, how does that affect the activity of those T cells? Now, Erica, that's so cool. To be fair, this is, you know, a conclusion that I'm, you know, piecing together from a lot of different information. I wasn't able to, in order to prove this, you'd need to either do co-cultures of cancer cells and T cells together. You would need to basically inject T cells and the cancer cells into mice that have functioning immune system, something like that. But best I can do so far, I think this is how it works. Oh, and, and the support piece was that you remember I told you one of the GABA-A receptor subunits is bad for you while all the others are good for you. Yes. The one that's bad for you has been thought to be a pan-cancer marker, which means maybe it's on the host cells, the T cells that are responding to the cancer no matter what. But it's a, so high levels of this Delta subunit 
it could mean that's like those are the GABA A receptors that are causing the T cells to shut down. Right. They all have that delta subunit because that's a high affinity receptor if it has the delta subunit in it. So it's, they're very they're highly sensitive to the GABA and the GABA will shut down the T cells. So if we can stop the GABA from shutting down the T cells, we can maybe fight the cancer better. Yep. Okay, that's cool. That's my project. So this has been your that's five my story. years. Of, yes, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I love that. So wait, are you going to be following up on this? Is this something long term you want to follow up on? I mean, I've moved on to a different project, and that lab will have to, like, my previous lab will have to either find a way to expand upon it or not. I mean, I once I you know finish my postdoc or something, if I want to go back and pursue this, I probably can. I'm, I'm publishing it so that if someone else wants to pursue it, more power to them. As long as it helps, then I don't care who pursues it. Science is fascinating. It's like, here's all this work I did. Now you take it and do more things with it. Yeah, it's a team effort. You can't do everything cool. yourself. That's cool. Okay, that's so cool. So yeah, now, and you said you moved on to a new project? I don't want to get us like, I know we're, we're at like an hour and a half marker, but like, I do want to hear what, so I, I, for, so I don't know if we talked about this last time, uh, but Erica uh, works for NASA now. Uh, indirectly, but yes. <laughs> so like, are you doing anything with that? Uh, I mean, so my NASA project is, a, is um, in a neuroscience lab. So it's a very different, doesn't have anything to do with cancer, doesn't really have anything to do with GABA, even though GABA is a you know, a neurotransmitter, I'm mostly working with neurons that uh, secrete other things. But having having this background, even though I used the GABA in a non-neurotransmitter fashion, at least I have the, you know, familiarity with neuroscience systems to kind of jump into this lab. Anyway, it's been super, super cool. I've been making neurons glow different colors and imaging them and turning brains see-through, and it's super cool. So Turning brains see-through. <laughs> Apparently that's a thing you can do. Oh my God. I'm glad you're like over here doing like mad scientist work with brains. She sent me a picture of a mouse brain the other day. I was like, not helpful. Not helpful. Oh. I'm a social sciences major. My, my, my undergrad was in history. And in your defense, you did ask for consent first. And I was like, ah, yeah, I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Show it to me. It's just what a brain. Do, I mean, yeah, but like you have to understand you're a scientist working in labs. So the rest of us like, that's not something I ever think about. I'm never like, huh, I would like to see a brain. I don't have that thought. Sorry. That didn't happen. The internet can show you lots of brains. It's I'm fine. telling you. And I never Google them either. It's never something I look like <laughs> that is not in my search history. So, you know. But yeah, Erica, this is really interesting what you've been doing. So five years and you've kind of found a correlation between like ways to fight cancer. Yeah. I mean, and I know it's not, it's not like necessarily earth shattering or anything, but it's a piece of the puzzle that I'm happy to contribute. And, uh, like I said, there's a lot I didn't get to talk about because, you know, science doesn't always, science doesn't always work out the way you uh, wanted it to. And a lot of experiments don't go anywhere. But uh, I think I found out something interesting. I think you found out something super interesting. Will you let us know? Like, definitely tell the podcast, like, once your paper is published. So if we want to, we can go look it up. Yeah. So I have, I have had one published already that's on the adrenal cancer, just correlations, not with the experimental results. So that one was published. I think it's called a targeted bioinformatics analysis reveals ABAT as a prognostic biomarker for adrenal cortical carcinoma, I think is the title. It's a long Which title. is cool. Long it's paper. a good title, dude. Super impressed. Super impressed. Super happy. 
I'm working on another one that has the pan cancer ABAT results and my experimental results. So. I love it. I love it. I'm totally here for it. This is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is there anything else you wanted to kind of like catch us up on? Or was this kind of it? I mean, that's, that's where I am. That's where I've been. That's why I haven't talked to anyone. We haven't done the podcast is because hey. I'm writing all that. But we're back. And now we've got this we're really cool back, paper. Baby. Back, baby. Yes. We're back from out of space. So I don't remember the rest yep. of the song, but that's okay. So I, I got those two <laughs> lines and I feel like that's good enough. All right. So. First mental health minute in almost two months. And I definitely want you to go first because God help me. I know you've had some mental health. <laughs> oh, it's been a, it's been an adventure. Um, honestly, I think all I have is like a, a kind of a big picture uh, mental health minute is that the little things that you do aren't always going to work out. And that's something that the dissertation project like more than thoroughly exemplifies, but the point is that eventually it's going to come, it's, you're going to get something out of it. You just have to think about it the right way. And the goal is to be a part of a team and help people. I mean, that's, that's for me, that's what keeps me going through it is because I'll be like this. I found out this one like small thing. I don't know if it's going to make a difference, but like, this is something that other people can take and run with it. And I mean, I found out other things too. I don't know how to say it, but as long as you're part of the team, and you don't like try to say like, well, I'm a failure. I didn't solve this one big problem. I didn't cure cancer all by myself. Like that's never going to get you anywhere. If you say I learned something cool, not all of my experiments worked, but that's how science goes. And at the end of the day, I can contribute to the body of knowledge that is science or whatever field you're in. Like for me, it's science. But, you know, for other people, if you're just helping like one person a day, then you're making a difference. And that's what matters is like remembering that you don't have to solve the world's problems to make a difference. So I love uh, that. it'll get you there. <laughs> Sorry. That was random. No, I absolutely love that. And I think that's true. And that's actually going to play a little bit into my mental health minute, which is you are not this, you are not defined by one event. You are the sum mm. of all the events in your life and all the choices that you've made. And there's always opportunities for growth and change if you seek them. You are not defined by a singular event. I am not defined by my job. I am not defined by my relationship. I am not defined by my feelings this exact moment. That is simply a blip on the radar moving on to create the one amazing, wonderful person that is me or that is you or that is anybody else. And keeping that in mind that just because you might not be in the exact place you want to right now, that does not define you as a person. So you've yeah. been lots of different people over your life. And, and you will continue to be so. You are all of them. Yes. <laughs> you are all of them. And you will continue to be different people. Okay. Well, it was great to see everybody. And we will see y'all next week because now we're back on a schedule. Yay. Yay. Back to podcast time. We're really excited. And hopefully I list my house June 1st. Hopefully pretty soon. Eric and I will be doing this in person together, which will be tons Yay! of fun. So excited. All right. Well, we will see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Do you ever tell the friends we 